Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. First of all, cheers. Happy Friday. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers, everybody. I'm cheers. having a uh, Pinot Noir from California in honor of the, oh, the, yeah. <laughs> the fact that there will be no Pinot Noir made this year in California. So well, there very, you are. very Noir. I'm having a lager from Mexico, I think. I also yeah. love that I, that I just slacked to you and Mike that I'm not a beer guy. Yeah. I'm doing yeah. a uh, oh, ver- Thank you, vermouth and tonic and a little beer. bitters. Ooh, I like Very that. Sophisticated. Yeah, my uh, luckily, my neighbor makes his own uh, vermouth and drops it off on my front door. So there is some uh, benefits to living in this poke apocalyptic Smokeville Valley. You just blew my mind. There is <laughs> no, that's a, a neighbor. There are people yeah. making their own vermouth. Yeah, and <laughs> dropping them off to the neighbors, right? I you mean, just live uh, live in the niche world in every respect, don't you, Jason? I, I I'd be lying if I didn't say that I just brought that up just for you, Rod. I knew you'd appreciate Love that. It. One. I freaking love it. Well, those of you who are joining us, I mean, I think everyone will know Jason uh, Buck, who's here today from his partner at Mutiny Fund. And this is a a pretty interesting, uh, high quality firm that really develops tail hedging solutions and strategies. So it is, uh, you know, which tail, how to hedge a tail, what the tail might be, tell me a story, all that good stuff. Um, so this is a really exciting conversation with a lot of depth and contexture to or context to the contexture to the to the to the conversation. And I, I always love these types of conversations, especially when I have to tongue twist that shit out of my mouth. So <laughs> I swear this is the first time you've gone on camera in the very beginning of the conversation and marketed for the firm that we were talking to. Like <laughs> I've never I've never seen that before. That was amazing. So Jason, I don't know you guys arranged in the you know before this. Thing, yeah, should we? Exactly you guys came on late. We got a guy. He's got a beautiful open road hat on, and he's having a drink with vermouth and bitters. You can't get any cooler than that. And by the way, those are all signs that you should not take anything that you hear on this particular podcast as investment advice, because there is none of that happening here. Go get that from qualified professionals if you don't. This is a happy hour conversation that'll be wide ranging and fun. So here you go. There it is. I want to piggyback on the disclaimer though. I want to break this back. I've been a long time listener, first time caller on Resolve Riffs. And in the beginning, the idea of Riffs was that you guys would just turn on the camera so people and the mic so people could see all the shit you talk on a Friday to each other. And then since then, somehow this has morphed into a presentation where people come with decks and slides. And I want to let you know, I am unprepared. This is a this is a happy hour riff. And my only uh, my only request is that Nobody brings up the three body problem. We have to talk about it. What's <laughs> like, hilarious is that, being literal. What's hilarious <laughs> is that we want to bring it up. And we want our, our, our guests to talk about it all the time. And every single guest is like, yeah, no, yeah, I've read it. It's okay. And then moves on. Like we've never been able to get anybody to engage deeply on that. And Adam is like, incredibly thirsty to get into it. I am itching. Yeah. Well, Ben Ben wanted to go down the rabbit hole, but we were, so. we were stuck a little bit and wanted to burn the U.S. down, so we, we, we stayed clear. I'm There's pretty sure you want to actually clear, I think. That's right. 
Um, so, so, uh, Jason is a mutineer and, um, so you guys are, are all about tail hedging. Are you getting a lot of interest these days? Like, is, are you seeing a spike in inquiries and, um, and engagement from people with this pullback? Sure. So yeah, you guys know how this business goes is like, you know, when did Noah build the ark before the flood, Gladys, before the flood, but nobody seems to care before the flood. After the flood, they want their insurance protection. But luckily, we we built Muni Fund so that way it was a permanent holding for long volatility and tail risk. We don't believe you should try to time your insurance. We wanted to create a product where, through the ensemble approach, you could actually hold it um, even as the market you know tanks off and V-shaped recovers and all the craziness we've seen this year. So yeah, the uh, the interest has been just just on fire since we since we launched in April. That's, That's great. Awesome. And, and no major pickup in, in, in engagement over the last few weeks as we, or I guess it's like been a week, what, a week and yeah. a half <laughs> yeah. of this if, little mini correction that seems to be, there's lots of drama online about, but so far it seems pretty benign. Yeah. To me, it was like, it was a lot of noise. It's rather, like, it's like everybody is, uh, everything quieted back down after March and now people just want some action again. So then everybody it's like, is this it again? Do we get to, you know, get involved again? And it was, it was, a uh, you know, and a lot of sound and fury in the end signifying nothing so far. So, mm-hmm. Well, I was, that's an interesting uh, conversation to have. Uh, you had, what, like a four-day run in the NASDAQ where you went down 10%. So it was like the fastest four-day in history or something like that. I don't know if this is true, by the way. I just I, I read it in a – I, 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 I heard it in a book I read. Totally, totally make, yeah. it, make um, it. And immediately you start getting questions like, have you been t- talks with uh, guys at Mutiny? Like, you know what Chris Cole's doing? Like, how does this, how's this fun yeah. doing? And I'm like, it's hardly a tale, right? I remember the first week of March when it started to happen, it was like a 10%, 12% drawdown. Investors, like Chris Cole investors were calling me furious that he hadn't performed. And I'm like, you have to readjust your definition of tail here, buddy. Like you can't, and of course, like after that, he was incredibly happy, but yeah, this is a problem when we talk about tail, right? When we talk about that type of protection, if it were protecting right in the first 5%, then, you know, everybody would be doing it. Tesla's down 8%. Where were you guys? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We we try to be explicit with our clients that anything less than 10% is just noise and you can't cover that. If you wanted to cover right from 1% to 5% down, the bleed would just be so enormous. That would be, it would be pointless. So you have to pick kind of where, you know, you're going to make your mark and anything less than a 10% move is, is, is noise to us. But yes, we get those calls like, you know, it it moved today. Yeah, exactly. And so you guys are comfortable, right? Sorry, Adam, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, you guys are probably focused on the uh, equity tail, uh, which is what everyone seems to 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 want to hedge. But do you guys ever consider uh, other types of uh, of hedges across other other major instruments, possibly bonds or other asset classes that you believe might offer a, a an interesting way to to approach this? Well, you went out yep. of your way not to mention gold, Richard. Good for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to mention that, but <laughs> um. I think there's multiple ways to look at that. And and actually, I'm going to end up throwing the question probably back to you guys, is that, yes, we try to primarily hedge against S&P beta. And for, for that, because for the most part, that's what most of the world has, like, especially as you know, North American investors and American, but like pretty much the rest of the world has a lot of S&P exposure. But then the question becomes, in a risk-off scenario, when you're moving from a low vol to a high vol environment and you have that phase shift, 
is there really basis risk? You know, this is the thing we think about often is like, if I'm trading other, you know, uh, indices around the world or, you know, interest rates or treasuries, et cetera, those correlations go to one when you have such a violent phase shift. So I'm not sure you have too much basis risk when, when we're moving from a low vol to a high vol environment. Um, and then after you have that sell off in S&P, you know, the, the IV expands in S&P, so it becomes a lot more expensive for you to have those positions on. So maybe you could look for cheaper convexity in, in rates and, and treasuries and gold, et cetera. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, but for the most part, we really try to focus on, on hedging that S&P beta exposure. But then the question becomes after that sell-off too, are you now having enough duration of movements where, where commodity trend would be a better um, protection over that uh, a longer, more drawn out, uh, you know, lagging recession versus, you know, that, that, that sharp tail risk protection. Yeah. I, I think this is a, a contentious uh, point of conversation <laughs> for all of us here. Cause I think I'm in line with the idea that the world only cares about that S and P risk and that the basis risk is likely to be for that is likely to be small. I mean, when everything's falling apart, and we saw it in March, and I've said this before, when you have those three days where it didn't matter what you held, whether it was gold or treasuries or equities, they all went down together for, for a very small period of time in that liquidity event. You could have had a hedge on anything and, um, and made some money, right? So I think the idea of tail for most people is that catastrophic point. Um, that's to me, that's what I like, what I really, really care about. But there's certainly other tails to hedge out there. I, th I think you, the guys at Logic, uh, you use uh, Wayne's as part of your lineup, right? I remember back mm -hmm. in the day when Wayne, uh, when I talked to Wayne, they did use some gold in there. No, as part of the tail. Yeah, it's kind of like a dynamic proxy situation. So as as they're long a straddle and they're gamma scalping it daily and adjusting their positions and their their puts and calls, part of what they'll look at is you know if if they can't load up on the inventory they want on puts or calls, they might look to proxies. So if they can't necessarily load up on S&P puts, you might use a little bit of proxy of gold or treasuries. Then the other way they look at it too is if you know you have that March event and vols above 80, they might uh, look to going maybe deeper in the money on those straddles, but also maybe look more to those proxies because with vol whipping around at that size, it makes it you know pretty difficult. Right. But to your point, you Rod, I think that- Short-term trend followers in your fund too, yeah. right? It's not just, yeah. Yeah, so the way we always like to look at it was, you know, you can have these deterministic rolling puts where everybody knows the bleed of those, where you, you know, you're bleeding three to 5% a year, and you maybe use a negative 15 to 20% attachment point, and you know the bleed of those puts, but they're always on. Then you have like the more dynamic options managers like the Universas, the Artemises, the Headwaters of the world. And we like to create a basket of those as well. But around the periphery, we add in back these, these VIX arbitrage managers and then these short-term trend followers in the stock indices. And what they'll do is they, they can short those stock indices around the world. So what's great about that is, especially after March, as, as IV rises, they can go delta one short those indices and just position that way. And it's you know, and as you guys know, it's incredibly difficult to be an intraday trend follower on markets. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's, I, I mean, at least other than the recent March sell-off, the typical character of a drop is that you do get this sort of initial drop and that tends to be abrupt and and hard to predict and out of nowhere. And then you typically get some sort of follow through. And, you know, I think if you go back and there's whatever, six or eight major bear markets, if you look at the U.S. since 1900, the average recovery time is about six years from from um, peak to trough to peak.
And I mean, this has just been so anomalous, right? So really the only type of tail payoff that, that actually paid off this March was that true, just like always on um, out of the money put hedge. And even most of the trend followers, except for the, the ultra short term ones um, were still caught offside for much of the move. And then those that weren't offside or, you know, managed to catch some of the, the first move down, then were offside for the move up or got whipsawed or whatever. It was just a very difficult um, test for trend following. Um, so, you know, it, there's always this discussion about whether the character of the market has changed sufficiently that, that um, you need a wider variety of different types of hedge products in order to be able to capture all the different types of crises that might man manifest. <clears throat> yeah, that's where I was trying to get at, uh, because I think a lot of people are now thinking about the risks bonds post, particularly sovereign bonds. And there's there's going to be a side of that argument that's going to say that central banks are going to continue doing what they're doing. There's yield control, what have you. And, and no one needs to really worry about that. But that that becomes part of the risk it, that adds to the to, to, to the risky environment that one day this this might unravel and come undone. So I was wondering if you get some asks or if, if there's any demand in that regard. I know that we have a couple of instruments. There's one uh, VIX equivalent for for treasuries. The bond, uh, I mean, the move index. The move, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah. So, wondering if that's a part of any conversations that you that you've been having. Well, the the move index is non tradable, um, and Harley did a great job of inventing that. But um, the way we look at it is like going back to, you know, whether you take S and P basis risk or not. We believe around the periphery, we're looking to add some of the more like European managers that might trade uh, interest rate vol, treasury vol, and FX vol, and because those are so prohibitively low right now. Now, that's because maybe Ceteris Paribus is telling you something that you're never going to make money off that. But as long as it's low or even positive carry, you don't really matter. Um, but, you know, so we're looking to add those positions um, because then, you know, that volatility could manifest there. Like, especially if we if we still suppress, somehow suppress volatility, you know, domestically, does that then get squeezed out into the FX markets? And that's that's where we see it. We don't know a priori, but that's, that's some of the positions we're looking to put on. Um, but going back to what Adam was saying, I think that, you know, the way... The way we kind of look at it is, you know, we're not perma bears. We're not permanent long ball guys. We, we look at it as it's a piece to of overall portfolio construction. And so, you know, you can have instances like Adam pointed out previous previous declines and recessions where, you know, you have this phase shift from risk on where all those implicit short ball trades, your you know, stocks, bonds, PE, VC, all, they're all doing well. Um, but then you have this violent phase shift to then before those commodity trend managers can take off. So we just want to really make money in that violent phase shift. So that way you can then rebalance and redistribute all those gains to the rest of your portfolio. And so, but then the thing that was always frustrating to me with building global tactical asset allocation portfolios, and, and Rodrigo and I talked about this many times privately, is we just hadn't seen in a long time where everything could have been in an uptrend and then you got that sharp reversal because usually people are like, they mentioned 87 or 2008, they were like stocks were in a downtrend so they could almost market time their put protection. Where, you know, as you saw with risk parity or, or any other vol target or whatever, you got, you know, if everything's in an uptrend, you get your face ripped off in February, March. And then you might then, as you're adjusting, get whipsawed, like Adam's referring to, which is like a form of theta bleed, I guess. But like, we were just looking to try to protect um, or ballast those kind of portfolios, whether it's just, you know, your stock and bond portfolio or just stock portfolio or whether you really have a holistic portfolio. It's a nice piece to the puzzle to make some money when shit hits the fan and when everybody's running for the hills and even more so than everything's on sale and you're the one sitting on cash 
but now cash has a very different value and that's hard to maybe sometimes get across you know cash in november of last year had a certain value but cash in at the end of march of this year had a very different value to it i, I just want to applaud you for using two latin terms uh in one monologue there along with <laughs> with uh with with some greeks so i i think you're the first guest certainly the first guest to wear a hat like that to invoke two Latin expressions in some Greeks in the same monologue. So, so uh, well done. Um, Adam's coming in hot already. I knew I was going to have to start drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing some shade back at you, man. I, there's lots of shade thrown in through the the, ch the chat channel. Usually, I thought we were going to wait to talk about free will till at least like 45 minutes in. But yeah, <laughs> here we go. You know, you keep throwing out things you don't want to talk about. It's like, don't remember this thing. And what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Yeah, exactly. You, know, you can't not remember something, right? I'm just so, poking the bear. <laughs> well, you've poking four bears here. We've been bears yeah. for like 10 years. So I don't, you know, we're just, we're still Damn. waiting for our train to come in, but exactly. uh, I'm sure it's coming. Oh, before so, I forget, so, sorry, I, I don't mean to derail the conversation, but I just realized I'm super jealous. Rodrigo, are you up to three out of the five flags now on flag theory? I totally missed that reference. Oh man. I thought you'd be all over flag theory. Uh, so flag theory is like where you were born in one place, so you have that passport. You move to another place, so you get a second passport. It's all about risk mitigation, right? Then you start your company in a, in a third country. You hold your bank account in a fourth, and then you're basically like, there's a fifth, I can't remember, but then you're basically a PT, a permanent traveler, a permanent tourist. And that way you've diversified all the, I thought you guys would be all over that shit with your- Well, you know, well I think, I, I, was about, I, I just wrote a thesis on it and called it the, Rod the Rodrigo effect, but there's something already out there called flag theory? Oh uh, yeah, no, we're just not into the Really, you know, some people are labels. No, so you know what? You know what I do says the pot. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was very so today. I got my Caymanian driver's license. And I was ecstatic. Like this is oh, just congrats. the first step, first step towards the that that third nation, and uh, and you are in you know land of of many nations. So, you know the people that I've met and and befriended thus far are from like nobody's from the same country. Right. So you got a Spaniard, a Brazilian, a Peruvian, you know, a, a guy from the UK, an Australian, a South African. It's fantastic. And who knew you could go, be more multicultural than downtown Toronto? Yeah. 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 So just really just off the Commonwealth nations. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Multicultural. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of Canada, like, we've got we've got the, the CARICOM nation here. This one, this one, this one. <laughs> So Jim Carroll, I guess, did you send him some of your neighbor's vermouth? Because he's on asking you like the perfect setup questions for you to talk about mutiny. So uh, what is your view of single ticker offerings like Tail or Hedge or oh, DWSH man. or Abrevix? And then number two, is mutiny available as an, in, in an SMA? Man, Jim, uh, Jim was tweeting before and I asked him for softball questions and he's just hit me with the hammer right away. <laughs> um, so this is one of the hardest questions we get always is, you know, we love what you guys are doing. Do you have an ETF? Right. Yeah. So I'm sure yeah. you guys are used to these kind of questions. Yep. Oh yeah. And, or yeah, could, you you could you construct a, a very complicated derivatives based, uh, daily trading, uh, <laughs> trading I'm, multiple markets I'm overnight so in multiple, in multiple jurisdictions. Yeah. Could, could you have that traded on the NYSE and make it so it's a penny wide all the time? If, if you don't and make mind. sure, and, and and make sure don't mind. no, yeah, no fees to negative fees, right? You could, <laughs> um, 
I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to pitch our book, but basically my partner and I were just tired of having these conversations about with friends and family of like, I've read an Asim Taleb book, a Chris Cole paper, whatever. How do I protect my portfolio? And I was going, do you have, you know, 20 to $50 million? No. Well, you're fucked. So we were like, <laughs> somebody needs to solve this problem. True story. We, we spent the better part of the last few years figuring out, you know, what would all the workarounds be to bring a product like this to market? And so we think we finally, you know, after a few years of working on it and getting all the approvals, we think we figured it out where we're able to take, you know, retail investors uh, accredited. Uh, you know, why do we have to deal with this accreditation is beyond all of us. But uh, mm-hmm. with $100,000 minimums, and we allow them to access to these best and breed long volatility and tail risk managers. So we have done, I think, the best we possibly can to bring that ticket size down to it as minimum as possible. Cause some of our managers have $10 million ticket size minimum. So we think at hundred K we brought it as close as we can to retail. Sure. I wish I could stuff it inside an ETF. Um, we actually talk with our mutual friends at um, alpha architects all the time. I know the shit out of them with questions every month. Like how could I stuff this into ETF? And they're like, that's too much leverage. That's too much derivatives. I'm like, but what if we change this? You know, and like, it's just impossible with the regulations and the regulatory costs. Um, when we talk about other products like tail, or the Abrix and um, you know Aaron's product, and even Nancy Davis's eyeball. Um, we tend to recommend like all of them, but just like you guys, we firmly believe in an ensemble or mosaic approach to that basket. So you're not going to quite get the sophistication that we're able to offer via our the managers we invest in with Muni Fund. But if I was building one with the retail ETFs, I would want to combine you know a lot of those different products, and hopefully that gives me at least some pseudo tail risk protection. Like I just. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, just the challenge there is the capital efficiency of it all. Yeah, yeah. So, so keep keep going. Finish your finish your thought because maybe you'll wrap yeah. that into the, no, that would have, the. The capital efficiency is another issue. So we even in house offered our long volatility fund uh, overlaid with 100 percent S and P exposure because the capital efficiency we can use with rolling futures and have the v- combined cross margin. Now, if somebody wants full exposure, they can take it, and we think it's a great product and it, it's far superior to 60-40. But then they if they don't want 100 100 percent exposure, they can toggle that down and at least they get the capital efficiency then rather than us doing 50-50. So we provide that capital efficiency. But you know, with all of these products and whether it's tail or anything, and, and if you talk to Meb, as you guys know, it's like how many, he sees the people trading in and out of tail all the time and trying to t- time tail, trying to time their insurance. You know, it's, I think it's just crazy to me that like everybody is, you know, all of their, everybody's portfolio of assets goes up when the market goes up and down when the market goes down. And then all I have to say, all I say is like, why not con- include something that goes up when the market goes down? And people look at me like they have two heads. It's like people have, have pulled their goalie in the first period of a hockey game. And I'm like, hey, you know, that, that goalie might add value to your team a little bit, you know, sometime along this game. But so, so on that note, like, I love the idea of the combined portfolio S&P plus the tail capital efficiency and so on. Yeah. When you have a product like the ones mentioned here, and I think like your, your product without it, when you don't have that capital efficiency, you know, you, you need to allocate a lot more to it in order to get the protection for whatever equity allocation right. you have. I always struggle with this question, right? Because the way I, we used to do it is we're putting it in as efficient as possible, you're putting two or 3% and that decays. And every four to six months, we have to call clients and be like, you got to re-up again. And that got old real quick. Um, so the, your only other option, the most accessible option is this one where it's like the protection plus the cash. And then you have to overlay the S&P. How, how do you answer that question? Like how much, how much tail in that type of product yeah. versus my S&P exposure? As you know, the $64,000 question for all of us is position sizing. 
-hmm. right? Portfolio construction and position sizing. That's what everything comes down to is position size. And it's really hard to get that across. That that's the most important piece. And Rodrigo, you know more than anybody that, you know, you've, you've felt the pain more than anybody of having that allocation, that 3% bleed. That's the most cash efficient. You know, I firmly believe people should eat that bleed and, and, and balance it with your implicit short volatility or long GDP positions. And you're going to compound wealth better over multiple cycles, but you have to wait multiple cycles. Right. And, and so, you know, all too well, better than we even we do the behavioral problem with that. So we're just trying to solve that behavioral problem to try to make this hopefully flat or slightly positive carry over the business cycle or risk on cycle, which also means we're, we can be down in, you know, quarters to years, but over the cycle, we're trying our best. But so part of that is I look at it three ways to try to give people an idea, maybe three or four ways. One is if you have less than 10% allocation to like a long volatile risk product that, like us, that's the bare minimum. As you know, that can barely ballast yeah. the drawdowns of 90% of the portfolio. If you take the perspective of um, risk parity, or I'll, I'll even go back to permanent portfolio, is if you view uh, Harry Brown's permanent portfolio of 25% in stocks, bonds, gold, and cash to handle any macro environment, I would take the 25% in cash and allocate that to long volatility tail risk. And this actually, because it's a much more convex cash position to make up for the left tails that you would experience in the stocks and bonds, right. especially if their correlations come back to positive. And it goes back... Um, to something Adam said, I, I just wonder how much the markets are changing and with the notional leverage across not only trading, but in the economy, that you almost need derivative exposure, that structural negative correlation to make up for the rapidity or the, the, the sharpness of those drawdowns. So that's one way we think about it. The other one is if you look at classic 60-40, um, I don't know why we got anchored to 60-40. To me, it would be 40-60 that you would be 40% short volatility, 60% long volatility, do the extreme left tails of short volatility. And so people like that blows their minds because they, they're so anchored to 60, 40 the other way, that if you just look at it mathematically, it compounds wealth better over time, but you're going to probably drag behind your neighbor for, for years at a time. But because of that huge left tail, uh, you know, stocks and bonds are implicit short volatility, you know, that you're really going to ballast it out that way. Then another way that's maybe a little crazier, but you know, I'm, I'm a guy in a hat drinking vermouth, is that uh, we look at it as an entrepreneurial put option. So myself as an entrepreneur, I look at my holistic risk, right? I have my business risk. I have my house. I have my car. I have my, my girlfriend's profession. I have all of those risks to worry about as holistic risks. So any savings I've left over after consumption, I put it all in long volatility tail risk because I really want that cash when shit hits the fan. And then I can go out and buy assets for pennies on the dollar because of the pain that we've all lived through and those experiences of what that's like to to not have cash on the books when those things happen. I also love that. Uh, I actually heard Meb say that he yeah. used tail protection for his own business. Like the business bought it. And because he's exposed to a lot of beta yeah. just from as many products. Right. So he cash, cash position that yeah. he can reinvest into the company. Meb went out of his way to draw that to uh, the attention of advisors everywhere. Like right. you, you've got beta on beta on beta in in your in your business so where should your investments be well one would have to consider having a pretty significant you know uh, tail type investment in your portfolio so that when shit hits the fan you've got actually an asset that has had a positive convexity if you think about that if you sort of take that through to other business models and other entrepreneurs because we know where most entrepreneurs um, put most of their business risk is in their small business now go talk to any restaurateur go talk to any hotelier Go talk to any uh, and basically any small business. And if they would have had a significant now, obviously they've been saved 
they had the S&P, they're fine. But if we walked it out during March, they would have probably felt a little better with the with the tail hedge in their portfolios or actually being uh, their portfolio recognizing the risk they have in their own business, sort of crossing the chasm between the public markets that they're invested in the, and the private uh, enterprises that they might own. I wonder if, there, if there's a fourth function. I think you talked about it a little bit with the the 60-40, but, but it is to, to basically eliminate the bond. Uh, everyone's worried about bonds. Sovereign bonds may not have any return. What if we get into an inflationary environment? So let's just eliminate the whole bond portfolio and replace it with the convexity that comes with with the the, the VIX strategies and not have to worry about you know that that type of idea. Oh, I'm just throwing it out there, guys. Don't shake your heads yet. Oh, well, I don't you know. It's a crazy idea. But, but all I hear is, oh, my bonds, what are they telling me? Well, what are they telling you at 68 basis points for 10 years or whatever it is? They're, they're, tell, you know, they're, 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 they're alluding to a lot of different opportunities for shit to go wrong. Yeah. You know so, what, though? I liked, I liked the, I was just, uh, I anchored to your uh, permanent portfolio approach. And I do want to address what, what you said, Mike. But I, uh, can I share my screen, Ani? Oh, no. Uh, here comes a chart. Well, he's chart. While he's sharing, you almost dared me. While he's sharing the screen, uh, this is where my mind went too. Is that if I was going to actually replace something in the permanent portfolio at the current rate rate level, I might actually replace the bonds and keep the cash because the cash will actually rise. The potential return on the cash rises if if returns rise in cash, and I'm getting convexity in a bond like uh, way in the permanent portfolio. I'm sure you don't care where I replace the 25% no. from as long as it goes to mutiny. I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll take all of it. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, look at that freaky, look at that freaky I, graphic right there. I would disagree, and I might be front running um, some front running Rodrigo on this is that, you know, if you think about the permanent portfolio and, and your bonds are more for a deflationary protection. So if you're not going to use, you know, government bonds, maybe you look at, you know, alternative fixed income with real assets. And and that's why I, I view it more the cash position. But going back to what you're saying, Mike, what I do agree with is if you're only if your primary holding is stocks and you're using bonds as a uh, portfolio weight to reduce the volatility in stocks, then that would be a replacement for the bonds. And that's why we think we're much better than a 6040. Right. So it, it's, as you know, it's multilayered. And I think Rodrigo's done a great job of even talking about, you know, from here to zero, there's still you know, great returns on long bonds. And then if real rates are higher than, you know, than, than interest rates, there's a, there's another kicker there. The problem is, I guess, if we go negative, then it's, as, as Mike Green would say, then you essentially have a, a, a bleeding put option without the convexity, but. Yeah, it becomes return-free risk, right? It, it yeah. remains as, but I think people have been trying to short uh, German bonds for the last five years since they became uh, zero bound. And I think for the JGBs, it's been what, 30 maybe? Yeah. So I guess that 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 whole trade and that whole idea that bonds are just gone and 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 granted um, I go to that initial knee jerk reaction sort of I don't want to own bonds in the portfolio from a gut reaction early on but when you think it through and you go back in history and you look at these other sovereigns it 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 doesn't seem like that that uh, that reaction has been there all the time which isn't to say that the risk isn't there and that this couldn't be this time couldn't be different right that that, that whole paradigm shift idea it could be yeah. there but, but I, I have one further point to add on that richard because i think there there is which i just realized as we're talking about this one we're talking about the first initial potential reaction for longer sovereign bonds to be able to create some sort of uh, ballast in the portfolio that's one thing and that's over the next next crisis 
over the next 30 years, it's very difficult to argue that bonds are going to provide the same amount of ballast and, and, and drift that they provided over the last 30 years. But that could end in so that slightly, two, that two slightly two years, quite, right? What's like, that? That this, all of that could be, when we talk about 20 years, well, what if bonds blow up in, t- in a two-year period and all of a sudden they become super valuable, right? I, it, they have this massive. No, path, there's the path. But if you were invested, like, you were invested. There's path. Hold up, hold up. This is what I kind of want to sure. show. Like the idea of the permanent portfolio was that uh, go, some gold, some treasury, some equities, and then some some tail protection, right? I think what people, when you have that diversification, what people fail to understand is that you have the diversification because you can't foresee the future. You don't know whether treasuries over the next five years is going to be the best performing asset as it goes from 0.7 to negative three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it could be the best five years for bonds we've ever experienced, or it could be the worst thing. And, it, and it, it's probably going to be, if it, it's going to happen, it's going to be highly correlated to equities. It's probably going to be because of inflationary pressures. And if that is the case, and we're going to see some ridiculous outside outsized returns from gold and commodities and, and that is that inflationary push upward, right? So if you have that in your portfolio and you can't foresee the future, you, you admit that you can't foresee the future, then you may not have a bad experience, even with the shitty expected returns that we might see from treasuries and from equities in a high inflation scenario, as long as you have that gold in there. Sure. And- but at the end of the day, I, gold notwithstanding, that sure. which is correct, right? So the, the bonds will not provide the returns that they have provided over the last 30 years is the sort of the, the, the theme. And that's because you had a discount rate. And everything in your portfolio that is a cash flowing asset is priced off of that discount rate that's gone from 18% to zero. But I think what was, was return? what was a real, when I hear those numbers, I often like, I actually, I'm not sure. I'm, I think there is a VIG there, but is there like, what were the real returns that when, when nominal rates were at 18%? Actually, I haven't, like, I think Corey did something on this. Maybe you could pipe in, but like, is there, a lot of value in, in, in like in true. Yeah, they probably average like three, like three percent real returns or something like that, or negative. Yeah. So, so what, what are real returns today? Yeah, I'm. I'm. My favorite part about all this is is just the irony of watching you guys uh, debate this because you guys have done better than almost anybody about educating people about global tactical asset allocations. Is there's always going to be a part of your portfolio that's absolutely repugnant and odious and you don't want to own? Correct. Yeah, so you're you're arguing about. <laughs> no, bad we're, allowing the gut, we're allowing the narrative that comes from the gut feelings come undone and yeah. adam's just shaking his head going please god let it stop <laughs> <laughs> no you, we always bring this up right the idea of, of do people care about real or nominal returns right and i think we've done a lot of we published out our research and we had a lot of conversations i think we we try to skew to real returns but i'm coming to terms with the fact that nobody gives a shit about real returns and in fact only people only actually care about nominal returns and maybe that'll change if we go into some sort of weimar um inflationary regime but you know barring high teen inflation again i think that nominal returns are going to be what people anchor to for the most part and so it's a uh, i disagree adam 4 5% inflation i think would be enough people have anchored it sub two percent for a long time if it goes to four that's already 2x and 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 inflation is creeping up in in cost of living in, in many other areas that aren't really uh captured by cpi because of substitute fine. that's true but the reality is if you deliver the best you want to you want to hedge inflation deliver the best nominal returns you can 
right? There's yes. there's no sort of inflation hedge that's going to guarantee you can you can go and get tips and in, tips inflation or, or or buy tips, and you're going to get be hedged against the CPI, which the government is able to go in and change the definition of, and it may not be representative of your of your consumption basket. There's no good inflation hedge. There's not even a good um, consensus on the definition of inflation, right? So what inflation yeah. are we hedging? You know, I was going to go back and ask Jason, like in the in the era of the omnipresent Fed put, I would actually push back and say, why does anybody even need tail protection insurance? What tail are we protecting? The Fed is going to protect nominal returns. Sure. But they right. cannot protect real returns. So shouldn't we all just be buying puts on the dollar? Yeah, I look at it two ways. One is, um, you're right, there's a Fed put so far. <clears throat> and that, I, I would ask, how did that Fed put work out in March when we were down 35%? It takes a while for the gears of the Fed put to get rolling. That's fine, but nobody nobody benchmarks liabilities to three weeks of returns or nine days of returns, right? Like the reality is the Fed stepped in with everything in their arsenal and stocks went to new highs more rapidly by a factor of five than they have mm-hmm. ever gone up before. Yep. And they have continued to demonstrate that they will not allow this market to break in nominal return, in nominal terms. They yeah. will not allow it. And right. they, when it breaks again, they will be in buying stock indices. And when it breaks again, they'll be in buying individual stocks. They have demonstrated time and again that they will not allow this market to break. So they well, the cannot system, control both the system is built on it, right? And the dollar. So yeah. they've they've already said they're all in on nominal prices, which means that they are willing to sacrifice the dollar. So where's the real tail? Sure. So inflation. I'll answer that a couple of ways. Well, inflation is one tail. That's another tail that we think about often, but that might, you know, that's not what we cover with our portfolio currently. Uh, but the other way I look at it, you guys actually had this argument before is I wonder how much, you know, Adam, you started out as discretionary, then went to quant. But as you know, Tropic Thunders taught us, you never go full quant. So, you know, maybe we need to bring <laughs> your your art and philosophy back a little as as Rodrigo and Richard are far too aware of is there's massive left tails that none of us could think about. And so to me, the Fed put is a Malthusian bargain. It only has to be wrong once. And I'll be waiting there, you know, happily just waiting to bring it all in, you know, have that inventory on my books. Absolutely. Great, great answer. And I would also say that there is an answer for your product. Remember, I mean, the way you've thought about it, you came from how do you help your friends and family? That's retail. And the truth is that we're not talking about matching liabilities. We're not talking about the fact that it's going to go down and then go back up and you don't, you can't move fast enough. The vast majority of retail investors, as we learned from Dan Egan and uh, and even Portnoy in his uh, interview recently, is, is behaviorally flawed. So what you're hedging against is making bad mistakes. At the worst of it, even if you think you know that the Fed's going to be there for you three or four months down the line, right? That's fine, but the, the point is the volatility risk premium. That's what you're describing, the volatility risk premium. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with short-term losses. I wish I could make Mike's whiny voice. I don't like short-term <laughs> losses. That's the terrible. But, you know, like, I don't, I don't, this is uncomfortable. I'm afraid, you know, but, but the reality is that from a financial standpoint, the big boys don't really give a shit about a stock market that drops for three weeks and then rebounds at, you know, the big boys, the 40%. big percent were, were like how many, there was a uh, coverage of indices that chose not to rebalance. Those are the big boys making big boy mistakes, right? Sure. Sure. So they didn't, they didn't rebalance the S or, you know, a, f- a few of the different indices. I hear you. That's fine. And, and, and lots of people yeah, don't I, make I, I cite one data example. 
Sorry, you're looking at hindsight on one data point just because the market was recovered this time. You know, we can't go off of one data point. But to, to piggyback on several things Adam's saying that I think are, are, are interesting that maybe takes us off down a different road is, you know, what's what's the right thing to do? And I think you guys are so good about this a lot of times. But, you know, part of it is like, do we do the right thing to do or do we do what the clients want? So going back to your nominal versus real. Right. So if if the permanent portfolio, let's say, chugs along at two to three percent annualized real returns above inflation, you know, like you said, all we want is our savings to keep pace or outpace inflation and be there when we need them. So that's one way to look at it. I just did an interview with Steve Diggle that I thought was fascinating where we talk about what is money or wealth? You know, Steve had a huge windfall in 2008. And then now what does he do? Does he think about money differently or wealth differently? So now he's going out to buy a basket or ensemble approach to real assets with uh, farmland all over the world to German rental properties to then barbell that with a little bit of VC exposure too to kind of create a flywheel. But my question for him was, great. Everybody say, that's great for you, Steve. You made hundreds of millions of dollars. You're in your 50s, but I'm 25. What do I do? My argument is, and I, I'm curious your guys' take, if you're 25 and you're making, let's say you're doing great, you're making 100 grand a year, you should treat your savings the same way Steve Diggle treats his savings. You want to increase your amount of savings through your job or through your entrepreneurial activities, but you want to have a well-balanced portfolio that keeps pace with or outpaces inflation and will be there when you need it, whether that's one year from now or 50 years from now. And it's incumbent on us to not uh, tell the clients what they want, but what they actually need. And you know, you guys have gone down this road better than most. And it, it reminds me of your first podcast with Ben Hunt, where he said, if you do that the right way, you'll be a much smaller business. But it might be a it's but as I said, it's the pride of the craftsman. At least you have that internal pride. Like you could have a much bigger business if you sold bullshit, but that's not what you guys do. So there's like so 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 the the question in there, I think, was what does a 25-year-old yep. do? So you're you're earning whatever hundred grand a year, you're real matters retirement to um, be funded from your savings. And so how would you invest? Yeah, I'm I mean, saying maybe I'll go last. On, but I, you, need, you need to focus on real is my point. You were saying, fuck it, let's just go nominal. My point is you should always be focused on real and building a, a well-balanced portfolio of an ensemble approach to short ball and an ensemble approach to long ball, rebalanced properly, that then you worry about your real returns after inflation year after year after year after year. And as we all know, by reducing volatility, you reduce volatility drag and you compound wealth better. And it's there when you fucking need it, whether it's one year, 10 years or 50 years. Not like, oh, if I invest in stocks now and the big drawdown happens when I'm 28, I've still got 50 years to make up for it. Come on. It's, a, it's fucking nonsense. That's, you know, I, I should get fined for saying ergodicity, but it's an ergodicity problem. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, right? I mean, there is there is this sort of what hedge, what risk are we hedging? If it's the cataclysmic risk, then we're all sort of in this together and and you don't even want gold, you want guns and beans and shit, right? So let's take a step back from that. And um, right. you're 25, you've got a 30 or 40 year investment horizon. Um, you know, I'd say, candidly, if you're 25, some kind of global equity proxy is probably fine, right? The reality is the conversations that we have are with people who are in their 40s and 50s where it, they've got maybe 10 or 15 years before they retire. And the correlation between the sustainable income they can they can draw from their portfolio and the returns, the real returns they get on that portfolio over the next 10 or 5 or 15 years 
um, is extremely high, right? It's not the same kind of equation for a 25-year-old as it is for a 45, 50, 55-year-old. And that's a much more interesting and- I'm actually think, arguing it's the same. Problem, right? I'm actually arguing it's the same. You still have a- I know you are. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not convinced it is. Yeah, because you're 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 guessing that they have 10, 15 years, your 45 to 50 year old client, 55 year old client. You're assuming the 25 year old client has 40 years. Neither of those are true. It's the time versus the ensemble average, right? We, none of us know when we're going to die or when we're going to need money or when we're going to fall sick or when the next you know, COVID is. None of us know. And, and that's where he dropped ergodicity. That's where yeah. he dropped her. That's where it fit. Yeah. No, but the whole point of your er ergodicity is that there's a, there is a, a, a day or week or month along the way yeah. that derails Changes. the entire, the entire path. Changes right? it all. Yeah. So that's fine. And I agree. And that, but that, the point is that matters a lot more if you don't have time to recover from that, from, from that major event. Right. It's double serendipity though. My point is the well-diversified portfolio with also tail risk and options, and then whether it's modern risk parity or not, you know, combining that overarching portfolio, it actually compounds better than any other. There's no reason to say that a 25-year-old should be all global equities because it will actually compound better by reducing the volatility for the 25-year-old as well as the 55-year-old. Totally. Arithmetic versus geometric I, I mean, returns. I agree. I mean, former portfolio and, and risk parity, what have you. I'm just, I guess what I'm saying is for if you've got a 30 or 40-year horizon, it matters a lot less. I would argue that the the permanent portfolio or risk parity is still the optimal solution, lever to the right risk level. But if you choose levered risk parity or a global equity portfolio, for but the those are two very you know, different, those are two very different approaches in terms of their ability to navigate the uncertainty of potentially walking into an inflationary regime or potentially well, yeah. looking into a dollar slide that provides. You know, I think we're talking about if we can summarize it to the, the high risk area when you're pre and post retirement, right? That first year of your retirement, if you have a poor investment outcome, it represents something like 20% of the overall success of the entire portfolio. Yeah. And so those first, it, it goes down, it's like 20, 18, 15, whatever, it, it drops, but those first five years. And so you don't, there's some there's some stickiness to the lifestyle, right? I own X dollars and I am about to retire. And thus those X dollars are to pay for my golf course. I do not like golfing on public courses. Once you golf at your private course, I don't want to drive a Hyundai or ride a bike when I drive my Mercedes. So I have a level in my mind that I've accepted as my, my reality and I have an amount of money. And that is staring me right in the face versus a 25-year-old who doesn't really know any of that. And if they if they if they encounter an unlucky stream of events, they're going to come to a place that they're used to living in whatever that particular lifestyle is. I think there's a lifestyle shock that occurs. And their entire peer group encounters. Well, that's the whole life. Yes. And yeah. makes the same adjustments at the same time. And we all know that happiness is a relative context, not an absolute context, right? So for if, all, if you and all your friends suffer in the same way at the same time for the same reasons, it doesn't even, it, it hurts much less, right? So listen, it's it's sort of a, a hypothetical argument, anyways. Like I think we all agree, diversification. Oh, the best kind. No diversification. I thought we did, Adam. Before I you went down this rabbit hole, I really yeah. thought we did. <laughs> I just, you know, what my main th thrust is the investment problem for a twenty-five-year-old is not very interesting. That's my main thrust. <laughs> yeah. Let me. Oh, so Bitcoin, baby. Bitcoin, Tesla. 
Word. Yeah. Right. Right. Let me ask you a different way. Like, actually, I, I was just doing my favorite thing I, I like to do when I watch these resolved riffs is I look at Rodrigo and I imagine what he's thinking. But I don't know if you guys ever saw that 80s movie. It's like, what are you thinking of? It's like swimming pools. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Can I be honest? It was like Airheads, I, I think. Was that movie called like Airheads? Down, I went down the permanent portfolio rabbit hole in my in our like, internal yeah. plotting app and I've I've like cut out cut out like five different charts I want to show that I'll never be allowed to show, no. clearly. Uh, what, sorry, what were you guys saying in the last 15 yeah, minutes? Yeah, so Adam, Adam, I have maybe a different question. I'm curious how you guys think about because I can't stop thinking about this. Is like we all have due to these uh conventions of the the retirement account um in, in North America is this idea of absorbing barrier that then you're worried about with your 45 or 55 year old clients. I'm very curious about how you construct portfolios that then maybe is not in a tax advantaged account, but maybe takes advantage of borrowing against your overarching portfolio. So you don't have defined uh you know reductions once you hit 70 and a half years old and so then you can transform a portfolio to make sure it is more short-term and long-term and well diversified while not having to worry about having to take those those drawdowns when you when it hurts you the most yeah so you're talking about sort of asset location is that no it's more like a, um you know like you'll see like a, a a tech giant use um equity lines of credit like, you know, Elon Musk will borrow a loan against his stock. So then he doesn't have yeah. a, a tax consequence. So if you had like an ETF, you know, the whole world ETFs, that was a well-diversified portfolio that you could buy and hold forever. And then when you reach retirement age, if you just start drawing like 2% loan against that with interactive brokers is like at a percent, maybe 1.2%. Um, it's a way for your overarching portfolio to still continue to compound when you're actually withdrawing less and you're not worried about that absorbing barrier of when you retire and having to take forced liquidation of those assets. Right. So, so don't bother to put, don't bother to fund the retirement accounts because of the um, constraints that you need to, to liquidate at a certain rate. Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, I'm, asking, I'm asking like from, from your guys is putting all of your four entrepreneurial hats together is like, well, how do you think about that? Like, cause it just bothers the shit on me that you have this absorbing barrier that the government is telling you when you have to take a withdrawal. And we all know if that happens during a massive drawdown, especially if stock bonds are correlated, everybody's fucked. So it's like, is there a way around that? And that's what I'm asking. Like, I'm trying to think creatively and I'm sure you guys have thought about it. Is, is there a way around some of these issues that we're constantly dealing with? Well, well I mean, it, we have a lot of clients that, that already do that, right? We've got a lot of clients that, that put on deposit, um, stock, large stock positions, and they use that to collateralize futures accounts, right? So, yeah. so that's that is a biz, that's a large business for us, and I think we obviously endorse that as a as an excellent strategy. Um, and there's ways that you can hedge the stock position or not, or you know, there's lots of different ways to roll that. Um, and I like I like the way you're thinking. Like certainly, the forced liquidation of retirement accounts, and by the way, we have the exact same problem in Canada, but the forced liquidation of retirement accounts adds a layer of, uh, it amplifies the ergodicity problem, right? Right. Um, which I think the strategy that you're endorsing and that we employ um, for, for a lot of clients goes some way to addressing. So that, that's- I wonder if anybody's ever addressed it. Like well, what I've always wondered is the tax advantages that you get until that retirement age, I wonder if they could be completely offset by those forced liquidations into a sell-off market. Like, is it really, are you actually adding up ahead by trying to take a tax advantage account instead of having a taxed account? And maybe uh, maybe Corey or somebody else has done some work on this, but I doubt it. Well, I, I, it, it functions a little bit 
it's slightly different in Canada, but it is, you know, the, the, the money you get back is like an interest-free non-recourse loan, if you will, to the portfolio, mm-hmm. which is awfully hard to beat. Right. And that, that compounds for a very long period of time. And, and then, you know, part of the solution to the problem is to construct the thoughtful portfolio with uh, products that will prevent the, um, the issue um, wielding its head. So prevent the 40% drawdown in your portfolio construction within your, within your portfolio. Then, then you're forced to take some out. You're right. You have this smaller amount. And then if there is a rebound, you're taxed on that rebound, even if you did uh, shrink your spending in order to, to offset that. So there's definitely a, a drag there. But Again, it, there's a few things here. Number one, the first line of defense is diversification, both from asset allocation and uh, strategy diversification and the like. So that when you are, there is no forced, well, I guess there's a force moving from a taxable to non-taxable. You don't have to pay taxes. You don't have to sell your positions. You can transfer the actual units from your non-taxable to your taxable. And as long as that's diversified and the world is blowing up and you're not, because you have this beautiful permanent portfolio with tail protection in it, then really the issue becomes, I mean, I think the bigger question is, depending on your, the whole idea behind deferring, um, putting stuff in your IRAs or candidates, RRSPs, is that you are going to be withdrawing at a time where your income's lower. And for a lot of people, that's not the case. And so for those people that are still in the highest tax bracket, Right at the time that uh, that you're going to be taking it out, is it is it that much but more beneficial than having being able to do more things than you're allowed to do in your RSP and IRA and, and the like? That's a that's a whole different conversation. But but it just depends so much on what is the future path of taxation, what is the Absolutely. what is the distribution that you're expecting for returns, how much negative skew do we are we expecting in the distribution? What's the long term mean? Like there's so many, there's so many different pieces to that. I think it's, you know, some of it's just, I'm going to, I'm going to put a little bit over here and I'm going to put a little bit over here and I'm going to try a few things. And like Rodrigo said, and I think what we've all been saying is just diversify all the bets in the different dimensions you can. Um, and I do want to point to the fact that a few people, um, Brian and Jim in, in the comments did mention that uh, a Roth IRA or an IRA rollover, or what, there are methods in the US that you can employ to address some of the these sort of um, forced liquidation issues or, or, or tax related issues that I don't think anybody on this call is a, a particular expert in, but they're certainly worth worth um, contemplating for sure. Right. I, th- I think it's just what Mike Green's thesis is. I didn't I don't know why he has to put such a long deck together to say the most obvious thing that we've seen from all of our clients is that if they're only allowed to invest in stocks or bonds or target date funds, that is going to have perverse consequences over time. Yep. <laughs> like, it's really that simple. He gets, right? he gets paid by the slide, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's this is a classic. <laughs> you can't go to a very sophisticated conference and just say that and then drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> Statements of the obvious never work out, I guess. You know? Jason, I have, a, I have a question for you because you live in an area where there's a lot of VC, private equity, you know, mm-hmm. big uh, private pools with uh, long lockups and like. I used to think that that would be ripe for the picking for, for a tail protection strap. But you go to these guys and you say, look, you. You have the most tail to protect and mm. it's going to happen all at once. And, you know, when it when it does happen, it's going to be catastrophic to your fund. But none of them would ever care or listen to me because I'm curious to hear why you like what your experience is with talking to, to VC people 
and then I'll share some of the responses that I got. It's probably the same as mine. All VCs aren't pessimists. Yeah, they're uh, they're long they're long optionality. What what tail do they need to protect? It's only upside for them. And also basis risk, right? The 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 businesses that they're investing in don't necessarily have a high beta to to the S and P. They 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 might have these one offs that are going bust that aren't necessarily going to be protected by 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 liquid tail protection. Yeah, well, I mean, we're talking about like systemic risk to the global systemic market. risk for sure. Yes, for By the way, which is what I'm, uh, I'm the only for thing square. I'm ever talking about when I talk about tail. Um, and um, the response from these guys was even more like, if I do, I've thought about it, but if I do that, like I'm competing against other VC funds, and if I underperform by this much because of your goddamn drag. I'm I'm done. Like I cannot afford to have any. So it's the same argument on every other manager. Right. right. Do you think they would do it in their PA then, or what's even worse than that argument? I've heard from people that even like are let's say they they're they're long a tech company and they're long the stock and they're long the stock options. And I always talk about you maybe you should hedge with some puts. And then they think that's somehow a uh, that's magical thinking that they're going to bring down their company if they buy puts on their company. Right. It's also not. Yeah, I mean, there's no this is, there and that's a problem right this yeah. is yeah it's i mean how can you after you you're they're the turkey that has been treated insanely well by the farmer yeah. for so long why on earth would they even why would that thought even cross their mind um that was worse yeah, than that, right? because i've always been saying just wait when this when this yeah. thing comes down on your head it's going to be so bad for you though all your pe all these pension plans and invest in pe then i sit down with the pension plans and they're like I'm like, how how are you doing? How's your piece? Like, oh, thank God for that, private. Because <laughs> we're not going to see those losses for another 18 months. Well, that and that's like, the other thing, right? Private equities. There's actual marks, like negative yeah. marks, helped you. Like, they're able to mark them back up again. Like, it's, yeah. it's exactly. If you were able to mark the market right now, what would it be? Like, oh, it'd be horrendous. It'd be the worst thing on the market. But that's the beautiful thing about you know accounting, like the accounting based at NAV that. We don't have to do that, and it's a bit of a blessing, and it keeps you the should all be allowed to mark the make believe, honestly, or honest and, and confident and comfortable. They don't have to see the market. It's the best. I mean, don't be crazy. There's no a, nothing that they could do wrong. It's a behavioral advancement advancement in financial technology. <laughs> they can they can they can mark up their long uh, range expected returns as a pension fund by investing in private assets that they couldn't they can't get out of, and if at any time that they would need a bid, there will be no bid, but they are allowed to mark up their long-term rate assumptions, appease the board, appease the actuaries and the pension plan. I mean, it, it is, you know, it's it's a great scheme as long as it continues to operate. I mean, you got to say- If the Fed put continues, I mean, that is the totally, area that's going to benefit totally. the most. Well, totally. I, I mean, it's the area that's di- that has benefited the most definitionally by the change in the discount rate. And illiquidity and all of these things, they have funded this thing to the to the nth degree. What do you think infrastructure is? I mean, it is the most long dated asset you can have. If you think your bonds are a problem, my God, how's it going to like? How's your freaking infrastructure project going to work? Plant or this water plant, exactly. Wait, Mike, are you going to go down the green the new green deal? I just want to <laughs> prepare for that if you are. No. But I was, I was, no, no. I wanted to kind of maybe shift gears a little bit to to ask. Jason, because uh, you've mentioned kind of tangentially about some of the holdings that you have in Mutiny, and you mentioned Logica, but you also said that you're not just hedging for tail, you're actually trying to construct sort of a diversified holding there. So I maybe you want to 
mention some of the strategies. You don't have to mention them by name, but maybe the framework that you use. And then perhaps in the broader scope, what kind of portfolio you'd be looking to, to create in that diversified approach that, that you think is an interesting way to, to fit the, the mutiny structure uh, in an overall portfolio. Sure. That's a great question. So let me start with, by the way, Adam's, you know, saying that, you know, happiness is relative, but I'm not so certain based on this crowd. I think it's the, it's the inverse, right? There's a bunch of schadenfreude in this crowd. Everybody's waiting for the VCs to, to die off and the PE. And like, I don't think it happens. It's, it, it's, it's inversely correlated. <laughs> it's not um, fair, man. It's not fair. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the way I, I like to think about it is, you know, it's all, we all come from the same background, right? Of this, Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, then risk parity and, and these intellectual developments. And then you get to Chris Cole's dragon portfolio. And to me, they, they're all kind of, you know, you, we can argue about the, the attenuation of percentages here or there, but they're all relatively the same thing. So we think about Mutiny Fund, this ensemble approach to long volatility and tail risk, just being a piece of that dragon portfolio. So like the dragon portfolio is one fifth each stocks, bonds, gold, uh, long volatility, tail risk and commodity trend. So we've, we built this long volatility tail risk piece because uh, my partner Taylor and I just must be insane and gluttons for punishment because it was the hardest piece to build by far. It's the hardest piece to, piece to sell. But we wanted to build that piece first because what we needed for our friends and family. So this is very a uh, scratch your own itch, you know, soul in the game project for us. So we built that first, but then we are looking to add an ensemble approach to commodity trend using different look backs and everything, stuff that you guys are very well aware of uh, as far as like, you know, using a, a dimmer switch instead of an on-off switch um, that you guys work with Corey a lot on too. So, you know, we believe that you can build that overarching portfolio where long volatility tail risk is a piece of, and, and it's going back to that idea of, you just want my savings to outpace inflation over time. And, and we view that the difference though between Chris Cole's dragon portfolio and what we look to build is we're entrepreneur first. And so we really believe in entrepreneurs. So we believe in small active managers and we believe that gives us an edge because when people look at um, alpha and beta, they're always looking at just the nominal return, right? The, these, these active managers are, have, have dragged behind the S and P by 2% annually. And I go, great. That's just nominal return. What was their MAR ratio? What was their return to drawdown? And that's where you see the active managers usually excel is on the risk mitigation for drawdown, not necessarily volatility, but drawdown. So if the S&P is, at, say, a 10% return with a 50% drawdown, and this manager has an 8% return with a 20% drawdown, I can combine that in a capital efficient portfolio. And using other uncorrelated pieces, it makes the, a much more robust uh, return to drawdown. So that's the way we look at it is each of those pieces to the Dragon portfolio, we look at using um, active entrepreneurial managers to reduce that risk create an ensemble approach that way, as you guys know all too well, we reduce the, the signal to noise ratio. We get a much more robust signal. We reduce the drawdowns. And then we combine that with the same ensemble approaches to the other pieces of the Dragon portfolio. And that's what we're working towards that we think will be, you know, that's what we can look at to protect our own uh, selves and our, our families and, and, and clients as well. well I like the, way that as a, um, like the Dragon portfolio as sort of an evolution really of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio and risk parity, really, it's just, it's all the same line of thinking, right? And really what the Dragon portfolio does is it takes a global risk parity portfolio and it adds an extra dimension, which is maybe you want to call it convexity versus concavity or divergent versus convergent risks. And so, you know, you could take a global risk parity portfolio and you can add, I don't know why we keep calling it commodity trend, but like diversified trend following and maybe you know why we have to do that. 
CTAs or whatever because Chris Cole called his commodity friend. No, really no, because, because how many CTAs went after large AUM and now they just trade the most liquid instruments and commodities are out of their portfolio. You have to find the smaller managers that actually still trade commodities. Imagine that, trading commodities that without vault targeting. Commodities, right? You're just trying to create a convex um, risk profile, right? Which you can do by trading any well, combination do, of instruments do you, long do you think it's convexity yeah, or no, also no. or also the, the positive drift right yeah. i mean it, the long-term sort of exposure passively to equities as an asset class is is muted so you're hoping i suppose i think you're hoping that you're going to have a tailwind as long as well as convexity if you add the trend but well, I, look that's, at, that's, yeah and in two ways is, what's interesting in two ways is like if you pair it with buy and hold equities and you pair commodity trend or cta trend you actually need the buy and hold equities. If you start trending equities, that actually throws off the correlations with those. So you're looking for that uncorrelated trade. The second part is I'm more looking at, you know, one, those commodities being uncorrelated and, and as we know, the kind of payout profile of them. But more importantly, it's more about like it, the inflation side of it, right? And that's what like basically Chris is carving out from permanent portfolio, that inflation side of gold, putting some of that in commodity trend, at least that's the way I see it, is that let's talk about like gold for a second is, the gold path you need is the way gold works for you is it outpaces inflation, right? If it keeps pace with inflation, it's okay. Or if it loses inflation, that's what you're really looking for. So the way we kind of look at commodity trend is that by diversifying across like grains, metals, energies, one of those or, or multiples of those are going to keep up with or outpace inflation. So that's more of the inflationary hedge. If you think about permanent portfolio, gold was to be that inflationary hedge. I'm not so certain it is before anymore or... Gold is a single path dependency, whereas commodity trend has multiple path dependencies to try to hit that inflation hedge. And I, I, think I also thought thing. about it. Like, I think Go it's ahead. just really an, an evolution of, of that concept. It's just thinking about it as, as long only versus long short trend is like, you can say the exact same thing. So a global risk parity portfolio, let's say it owns a bunch of global equity indices, a bunch of global bond indices, and a variety of global commodity indices, including gold, but also including, as you say, grains and softs and metals and yep. energy, et cetera, right? So you can, that's a global risk parity portfolio holds all of those different dimensions of risk. And you've got nice risk balance and what have you. If you overlay trend following on all of these different dimensions, then you've got long only plus long short trend following means that if you size it right, when the trend following sleeve is short equities, you keep, keep in mind, you've got this strategic long only equity sleeve. So when right. the trend following exactly. is short, equities, you're just neutral equities, right? Or zero equities. When it's, you know, you've got this long commodity sleeve, but when the trend following strategy is short commodities, then now you've got zero commodities, right? So it's really just like a, a timing overlay on this diversified basket of exposures, some of which are going to thrive during a deflationary episode. Some of them are going to going to thrive during periods of benign inflation and robust growth. Some of them are going to uh, thrive during periods of poor growth and, and uh, larger than expected inflation. And the, the trend following overlay is just sort of de-emphasizing those markets that maybe have a, a lower drift during this macroeconomic regime. And so it, it's just different ways of saying the same thing. Like you can have a diversified global risk parity portfolio combined with, I love that the dogs are barking, combined with a, a trend following and a tail protection strategy. They all amount kind of the, to the same thing. Chris Schindler on, on when he was talking about his commodity sleeve, he said, you know, commodities don't have positive risk premiums. So I just decided to do something different. Like, a, you know, basically alluded to a, 
commodity trend as the commodity side of risk parity and called it risk parity, right? But that's not like, you know, the diehards risk parity guys are not going to do that. There's there's some positive risk premium in a, in trend, in commodity trend. So if you can get your cake and eat it too, your, your positive trend uh, factor and that inflation protection and that non-correlation to your equities and your bonds. But you know. coming, coming back to the way uh, Jason framed sort of the, the long uh, buy and hold equity portfolio. So you've got a nice risk premium there and commodities. I think this is changing, but commodities historically have been an input cost for that long equity book. And that input cost has uh, implications for profitability. And so if you are timing your commodity, you have a commodity trend exposure, you are offsetting some of those cost increases that are happening in your equity book when commodities are trending up and can be a headwind to the to the potential profitability of your equity book. Mm-hmm. You're also, um, when, when they're short, obviously, you know, in a traditional economy, now the economy's changed a lot. Obviously, we're in a bits and bytes economy now. So there, there's, you know, what has what has occurred over the last hundred years, these 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 structural relationships may or may not may not proceed in the same fashion, but I can certainly see that from a, a very sort of first principle structural basis kind of resonated. It resonated with me when you said, Well, you've got your equity book, you're buying holding in that, but then you've got input costs. So what do I do about these input costs? Harry Brown said, I'm you know, gold is just a, another currency. Um, for to, as a proxy to hedge inflation and those costs that might be going in, and just did one asset class. When you start to expand it, it gets a lot more com- complicated. But yeah, I don't. What, other, what do you guys think of that? Yeah, I was I was going to touch on one thing you said, uh, Mike. But I got a couple of questions for you guys that I wanted to ask you. Is like one is um, the way we try to look at if you take this ensemble approach to commodity trend and to tail risk long vol- no, long volatility pieces, is that if you can get those to a flat or slightly positive carry or as close to zero as possible. They're not that drag on the rest of the portfolio. And then you can use your notional exposure to have much more exposure to those implicit short volatility assets like the stock exposure. And so therefore, you're actually out competing your neighbors without the drag on the portfolio. And those things are just laying dormant if it's 10 years before you know you have a, a target-rich environment for commodity trend. They're just laying dormant, just waiting for that to happen. Meanwhile, you have much more stock exposure than you would have in any other portfolio. And so that's why it's you have to argue all the pieces together than in the into any of the individual pieces. So part of that is I, I wonder with you guys is like you know when you're building these ensemble approaches, the literature would say that you need seven and a half percent conviction of any trade or any manager to have that diversify, diversifying effect. Um, how do you guys think about you know? how much position size each trade would need to have to have any sort of a balancing effect or conviction like to the uh, ensemble approach to the portfolio. To matter, you mean? Yeah. Well, I think it, it depends on the number of bets in the portfolio, right? I mean, That's I don't know how you get to a seven and a half seems arbitrary. So yeah, I don't so know where- a, that's some of like the academic literature on what what a conviction minimum would be to 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 have any effect on the portfolio. Well, I mean, for example, Assuming, if you've like, only got equities in the portfolio, then I guess you would want to have if you've only got equities is one bet, so you'd want to have at least fifty um, percent of the risk exposure in at least a completely different bet, right? And I think that's the challenge with yeah. portfolios is they're almost exclusively equity risk, right? But to the extent that you can expand into multiple bets, I mean, if I look at the the global risk parity portfolio, let's call it 65 or 70 futures markets, there's something on the order of 9, 10, 11, 12 bets in there. So you want, kind of want that varies. All of those bets to have approximately the same amount of 
risk exposure, right? So but nine, 10, 11, 12 is seven and a half percent. That's why, that's why I think it's interesting, right? That <laughs> sure, whole bucket sure. has to, yeah. But I don't know uh, very many investors that actually have nine, right. 10, 11, well, 12. And the problem is when there's three, when there's three, you shouldn't be doing 33, 33, 33. Exactly. I mean, that, that's but not the, not particularly the other, wise either. The other thing that Mike touched on that I really wanted to ask you guys about that that always bothers me is um, we've talked actually throughout this conversation, they brought a VRP, volatility risk premium, and ERP, equity risk premium. I'm not sure either of those exist. So if you can go decades- They don't exist. Right. Agreed. If you can go, if you can go <laughs> decades- say Nothing exists and we're going to like this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean- We if, all know where this conversation goes. I think it's a very, very deep conversation. Well, if, you know where I stand, you guys yeah. chat. If you can have negative for decades, if you can have negative ERP or negative VRP, then that doesn't mean there's there's a risk premium. It's just this thing we make up. But then part of that, what I'm really getting to is when you build this well-balanced portfolio and you rebalance frequently, you get a rebalancing premium. But I feel like when we talk about rebalancing premium, think people think it's fucking magic. And like we made it up when it's you can show the mathematics of it. But you start talking. I, I don't know if you guys kind of soft pedal on rebalancing premium. I, I, no, I internally do. At the moment, and and I think it's it's an, a wonderful magical premium that everybody should be thinking about because, especially in this low return environment, we've got bonds at 0.5 to one percent return over right. the next fifteen years, and equities at arguably you know somewhere in the sort of two and a half to five range, then every extra point of rebalancing bonus or any other type of premium really makes a huge difference. And if you look at the sort of a typical stock bond gold portfolio than the expected rebalancing premium, assuming you're using like a, a 20 or 30 year treasury, the typical annualized or historical annualized rebalancing premium is on the order of one to one and a quarter percent. The amazing thing is if you allocate appropriately to maximize diversification in a portfolio with nine, 10, 11, 12 different bets, like a diversified global risk parity portfolio formulated the right way, that premium might be two or three percent a year. Yeah. So you go from one and a quarter percent from even like a, a portfolio that's more diversified than most people own. So stocks, bonds, gold, right. 65 or 70 diversified asset classes uh, constructed in the appropriate way to two to three percent per year and expected premium from your balancing bonus. I mean, absolutely. Uh, that was a really, really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. And it's a it's a current focus. The, the, the challenge, point. though. Go ahead, Ron. I was just going to say that it's one of those objections that drives me nuts about this whole concept of being diversified. Why would I own any bonds? What the risk parity is going to be terrible because of this, this and that. They they don't understand that by taking away any diversifier, by just being concentrated in equities, you're taking away a massive real mathematical entity premium. Like we can't, we don't need to 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 argue about whether this exists. If we believe these things to be non-correlated on average, and we can do it the right way as Adam's, Adam was writing an awesome paper about this. Then you have this massive premium that nobody talks about, nobody knows about. And in fact, like you said, I don't know where you stand on this. Do you hate it? Most people do, right? Because most people think about this rebalancing premium within rebalancing your equity portfolio, right? You got 50 stocks and every time you rebalance, what's that premium? It's between zero and 50 basis points. They think of it as 2% to 3%. I don't think I don't think most people think about it. Most people think about the fact that over the last 12 years or 11 years that the S&P 500 has crushed everything and that any rebalancing that you would have done, any diversification that you would have done, subtracted from what their buddy did next door. And so it's just not a sustainable unless you are a thoughtful long-term investor that will invest over multiple cycles. 
it's just not a it's not a thing. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I believe gold is still outperforming the S and P over the last twenty years, and long bonds are outperforming the S and P over the last thirty. Thing. But risk parity, risk parity, proper risk parity, levered to twenty vol global equities. Hasn't done too shabby either over the last 10 years, but you can't know why you're not going to leverage. I don't want that type of volatility, but, but that's, you're invested in 20 vol. This is what you've invested in. You can't not do really. that. Over here. I, I'll take the other end. I'm not really. <laughs> Look at my, my 10 year vol is not that high. How do you guys think about though? How do you guys think about, I think about this often is like, if you take a, if you think about rebalancing, rebalancing premium, the idea of any sort of rebalancing is, is a form of uh, short volatility or, or selling a straddle because people say you're rebalancing is a mean reversion. It's implicit short volatility. I semi agree, but I, I also like to look at it more as like you're monetizing the trend of the other asset classes. So because you're not going, it's not a light switch, you're using a dimmer switch. So as you're rebalancing, you can be monetizing the trend. You're not truncating the left or right tails. You're still riding them. It's slightly mean reverting, but it's also, it has the, uh, it has the U shape as well. Well, and also it's not, it's not a pure martingale type Right. Um, short fall type trade because the I mean clearly you you want to harvest rebalancing premium from markets that are either orthogonal or if you can get it negatively correlated right so, I mean if, if the two markets are negatively correlated if one thing's dropping like a stone and the other one's if the other one's rising right and I'm not suggesting that we can always count on for example stocks and bonds having negative correlation but ideally you're going to want to put a, a variety of assets in the portfolio that are not all dropping at the same time. And in fact, if some are dropping, it's because of, of economic dynamics that are causing others to rise. Yeah. Right? I think meats, meats and meats and, uh, and S and P or NASDAQ probably relatively uncorrelated and, and corn and freaking uh, the XLK would be marginally uncorrelated. And if you yeah. develop these types of um, strategies or the access points to these different differentiated return streams, I just want to also make Corey sure that we know that we're, we're actively ignoring Corey Hofstein's question because yeah, I don't know Corey's question is you who, should. who pays? And the answer is we'll tell you later. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but Adam, Adam, let me ask you this. Like you were just saying, the as you were singing the praises of a structurally negatively correlated trade, I might just raise my hand on that. Is if, if 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 you could, I don't know if you saw, but they wheeled in they wheeled in a couch behind you. So if you could just lay down on the couch and tell me why you hate long volatility and tail risk so much, we can we can work through this. <laughs> well, the, the the point of a rebalancing premium too is that in hopefully you can find things to rebalance into that have a long term positive drift, right? So that it's keep in mind, I don't hate tail hedging. What I do, I think it's very difficult for clients to stick with. I think it's very difficult for managers to include in portfolios because they have to answer to clients in, in the short term. And I think it's very difficult to do well because you've got issues about monetization timing, about, you know, we were talking, we just glossed over this earlier about position sizing, right? Well, how are we position Are we position sizing on nominal? Are we position sizing on delta? Are we position sizing on gamma? Like, are we changing our position sizing as as Vega rises and falls? How on what period are we rolling? Like how much theta decay are we gonna are we willing to tolerate in order to get the appreciate the, the gamma that we want? And we yes. have good questions about this basically where you're very helpful about the fact that there's no good answers to this. And we just want to, like you say, have a good ensemble of things that are designed to protect against a mosaic of different types of risk. And I like that answer. It's like you just want to be generally correct. 
so that we can avoid the possibility of being specifically wrong or minimize the possibility of being specifically wrong. I like that answer, yeah. but it doesn't. I, yeah, you just you went, like I said, you went full quant. You you just can't, if it doesn't have a good sharp ratio and you can't fit it into an efficient frontier and you can't Vega hedge it, then it's just worthless. Well, no, I, th- I think, I think, I think that that's, I think that that's a, a fair statement, Jason. And, and I, and I actually don't think that you need precise answers to say all of that and then come to come to a 100% conclusion that zero is the right allocation. I don't think that we would say that either. I think no. that that's just an outline of the things one has to consider as you, as you absolutely should have an allocation to something that does, does this type of thing in your portfolio. That that is the, these are the, the complexities that you have to deal with in coming to some sort of uh, position size, which is is to say zero is not the right answer. I I would suggest. Have you I also you, try to pinpoint a correct answer is also suspect. There are no correct answers. There's no equity risk premium. There's no there is nothing. This is this isn't even happening right now. The specificity. <laughs> of, I think totally right. Like the permanent portfolio risk parity, dragon portfolio. At the end of the day, they all kind of end up doing similar things, right? And so it's almost like you just choose when to stick to it. Whatever, like you don't. When you get too specific, one of the things that bothered me about some of the papers and like the Dragon Portfolio is that it's not like one fifth each. It's like nineteen point five here and twenty two point five there. We're trying to be too specific. It, like it should. It, there's these broad metrics and this broad beliefs as to what how you should structure it. Do that, and you should be generally fine, right? I just want to apologize too to the millennials on the line who I, I, I obviously take exception to my acrimony. In uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, 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 Corey, yeah, so Corey can't understand. This is how Gen X people show their love to each other. <laughs> so, so Jason, I would love to actually also know on a on a, on a more serious note, or I'm going to say equally a serious note. So when you're when you're looking at all of these emerging managers that you're putting together and and, and assembling and ensembling, what's the process you go through? I think actually a a thoughtful process on how you sort of interview, select, put together managers, that's as hard a task as there is. Never never mind the risk premia. I think that's that's got a level of dimensions beyond just the risk premia that you might try to harness that is very complex. So I would love you to you know, just give us what you learned, what you've learned uh, thus far, what you learned in the interviews, how you might replace people as you as you continue on your mutiny uh, journey, uh, because there's a lot there that we haven't even. T- I hope you have time. I mean, we're at a, an hour twenty now, so yeah. if you've got time, I think that this is yeah. like I'm I'm really interested in this particular area too. The hours on us. Yeah. So I. Uh, I go back to like I, I think about I was during this conversation I've actually been thinking about Meb a lot in one of my other back of my mind is like Meb reminds me you know I used to live in the South and these guys would do all this oh shucks you know I'm just a Southern guy I don't know what I'm talking about and everything to me like that's the that's Meb shtick but Meb's a genius if you think about some of the things he talks about like Rodrigo's just hitting on one of them Meb did a study on like the portfolio construction didn't even need to be exact if it was roughly right that was good enough um, but one of the other things Meb talked about is like he he falls in love with every investment he looks at. You know, we all have the, the cognitive fallacy. Like we fall in love because everybody's shown us great back test. They, they, they're so smart, right? They all went to Ivy League schools, especially the managers we deal with. They all went to Ivy League schools, then Goldman Sachs, then prop firms, and then their own hedge funds. And, you know, they're all geniuses. It's all amazing, right? So it's, it's hard not to get sucked into the, the narrative. But the way, the way we structure it is, I, I think, slightly different. And to me, is 
as long as anybody just wants access to these managers and that's what they use us for and they think I'm a, a portfolio construction idiot, great, just use us for access. But the way we, we thoughtfully try to put this together is we look at specifically, we try to buy as many options as possible. So the entire portfolio is constructed about around buying options because we all know what that that debit card bleed is of those premiums. So you can't blow up when you're just buying options. But the way we look at buying options is we look about across the moneyness. So we might use like a, a logica for the at the money straddles and they're covering maybe that negative five, negative 15% move primarily after you pay up for the premium on the other side. Um, then you look at like an Artemis option profile that's much more strangles. Uh, we have like headwaters uh, volatility that's much more maybe opportunistic and is looking for cheap convexity, but it's it crosses that line of moneyness maybe from 10 to 40% out of the money moves. Um, and so those guys are very dynamic in the way they're trading options. They may be you know, market timing a little bit or, or just adjusting their inventories of options. So you know we added back in those deterministic rolling puts just in case something were to happen on a Saturday or Sunday, some sort of exogenous event, and our managers weren't fully in the market, we want to be able to sleep at night. So we, we added those back in because we think we can carry that cost via the overall portfolio construction. Around the periphery, we added in this VIX arbitrage, which is like a relative value you know, VIX trading, which still has a long Vega or long gamma profile, which is fantastic. And then we talked about the short-term uh, intraday trend on the stock indices going short those indices. When we look at those managers, what we're really looking for is a wrinkle of diversification. So once again, it's like, I'm actually saying something ridiculous. I want a beta signal from volatility arbitrage and those short-term trend managers. And I can create a beta signal out of them if I create an ensemble approach to that. And all of them have different heuristics and timing of the trade, but more importantly, different heuristics for monetization. And so if they offer a different wrinkle and I can combine uh, you know, a handful of them into that basket, I can create a more beta signal out of VIX arbitrage and a beta signal out of the short-term trend. And what that does is it provides a much more robust return stream that helps me pay for that potential bleed of the options. So that's the way we look at it. And, and, and part of that you know, diversification is what's been fascinating is during a risk-on cycle, um, our uh, managers are fairly uncorrelated. And then in risk off, their correlations go to one, which is negative one to the S&P. So we have this very serendipitous converging correlations. So we really like. So it's more about finding somebody with a slight different wrinkle to volatility arbitrage or short-term down capture to see how that combines at the, at the ensemble level. And then the options are, are really about trying to cover as much of that moneyness and then those different monetization heuristics to make sure you capture that move and make money off that move and capture the meat of that move. So that- I like that, that because there's a yeah. lot of- uh, th there's because of the nature of the distribution of the underlying strategies, just by but by their nature, there's a huge amount of dispersion in the exactly. different outcomes from the different funds. And so this is where an ensemble approach can really show its strength by exactly. trying to narrow that distribution, just your averaging error terms. And you're just narrowing right in on the signal, which I, I think is a really good yeah, concept. And, and, and you think about, sorry, I get that, but if you also if you think about the the dispersion, not only you have wide dispersions, but then you have three different uh, market microstructures with VIX options and and short indices futures, and so that adds, you know, to the interesting part Agreed. of those bucket dispersions. And then, uh, Richard, I think you were asking we we rebalance quarterly unless a single manager is up double digits in a month, then we'll rebalance across the portfolio. Um, it's an issue of granularity. Um, as AUM grows, we might move that to monthly, no matter what. But it's a granularity issue when you're dealing with the contract sizes that we're dealing with. Yeah, it's. I remember Adam. Sorry, Sorry Rick, we were discussing earlier about the the benefit of having that rebalance and, and, and just something that just has 
shot up three standard deviations, just cash that excess, put it back into the rest of the portfolio. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things I think of the first podcast when we discussed tail, Adam, was one of your concerns was what happens if you get it specifically wrong? Like you pick that guy that was supposed to pay off and it were like 50 basis points away from the payoff and we never got it. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things about the way that these guys have approached it is that there might be one or two of those guys that never get hit, right? But because of the way the asymmetry works in these, in these strategies, when one of them hits, it's massive, right? It's, it's not like you are giving uh, one-tenth of the portfolio across 10 managers and they only get one-tenth of the impact. On the asymmetry side of things, you can make it so that their impact is 100%, right? Yep. So I don't know if you structured it that yeah. way, but there, yeah. there, there's ways of mitigating against that diversification risk of ensembles if you don't hit all the triggers. It speaks to size. Right. So maybe Jason can also talk about the sizing because uh, you've talked about the different strategies and the different styles. And that is that helps us just get a good grasp of what you're trying to hedge across this spectrum of, of risks and, and moneyness that you were talking about. But I guess the, the sizing also makes a big difference here. Well, yeah, while, so, you're, while you're talking about sizing, maybe touch on netting, too. That's what I was going to hit the rods. Yeah. Perfect. So I, I think Rod was actually going down that road perfectly. So most people worry about netting risk. Uh, there's two ways to look at netting, but like if you have an ensemble approach and everything they're worried about, you know, what about that payout? You know, what if some managers catch it, some don't, and you, you, you lessen the convexity via an ensemble. Well, the beautiful thing is when you're building, building an ensemble with VIX arbitrage and, and short-term futures, and then the options bucket is you're maintaining all that convexity of the options. So the ensemble approach is beautifully just reducing the noise during the risk on cycle. When the risk off cycle happens, we're sitting on a massive inventory of options. So going back to Richards, it's like we think about that moneyness primarily. So we'll maybe overweight closer to the money because we need more of that kicker there, but they might require more premium. And then you're trying. And so it's, it's more about the probabilities. So it's like waiting based on the probabilities and the moneyness. And that combination leads to a better construction of the options bucket. Very cool. Wow. Oh, I, you're, I think you're mute, muted, Adam. I think you might be muted. Sorry. Sorry, I was just so passionate. I was, you know, I was yeah, no, it was that damn, it was that damn dog. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever dog that is, shut up. I was just going to say it's been 90 minutes and we finished on a high note. You know, I think we were in violent agreement there at the end, which. Yeah. Uh, Surprisingly. Yeah. Everybody's happy. I think people can take away something positive. The world's not exploding. I, I, we still hadn't talked about how we actually, like I get the portfolio assembly and all that sort of stuff, but like actually yeah. the interviewing of these people, how did you, how oh, did sure. you decide on these people? So, but we can, we can leave that as a teaser for a, a, an interview down the road as well. Um, because I think that is that, but 6 a.m. tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> or that can be the stinger after the credits, right? We'll run, let the credits go and we'll show <laughs> that one at the end. That's right. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Same cocktail, 6 a.m. <laughs> awesome. If you have time and energy for it, Jason, I'd, I'd love to hear that. And then how, how yeah. you're mo monitoring on an ongoing basis, how, you know, like yeah. you, you never want to replace one of the managers you have. What, how would you think about that as the ongoing monitoring's in place, all that sort of stuff? If you got... Before yeah. you answer, I have to go do some pickups and drop-offs and stuff for, for the family. So I will let you guys be. Enjoy uh, the conversation, Jason. We'll, we'll see you guys next week. See you, Roddy. Thanks, Roddy. See you, Roddy. Yeah, so just like you guys, like this is my favorite subject in the world. So happy to continue the conversation. <laughs> um, 
So when we are interviewing managers, we look at one, we actually, you know, like if we said, everybody has a great back test. So we just like to talk about where they get hurt. And then we talk about layering in, you know, the different uh, ensemble approach to where they get hurt. So that doesn't make us the most, you know, high returning uh, portfolio, but it helps robustify the portfolio if, if robustifies a word. Um, so that's the way we look at it. And then, like I was saying, we, we focus on the moneyness of those options. So uh, you guys kind of know this is like, it's a very niche market. There's probably only 30 to 40 players and we've been tracking all of them and I've been tracking most of them for over five years. And then it's, so it's, uh, it's also, you know, every year going to contacts in Miami, you know, meeting them with there, always talking to them on the phone, flying them to see them. Um, but that's how we kind of build the portfolio is we kind of knew the structure of the buckets we wanted to create and what those buckets needed to look like. And then we're just trying to find slightly diversified managers to fill those roles and think about where they get hurt the most is do we have somebody that kind of makes up for that? Because like I said, we want to, you know, create that, you know, just a slight, you know, robust return during risk on and then all that convexity for risk off. But then my, as you know, the, the hardest question in the world, and you guys, I think deal a lot, maybe now with your evolution fund is that how do you fire a manager? Why do you fire a manager? When do you fire a manager? Now, if you guys have an answer for that, I'm going to sit back and shut the fuck up. But like, it's the, it's the hardest question there is, right? Because as long as like everybody goes, oh, if they stick to their, if they get away from their knitting, I'll fire them. That's easy. Yeah. If somebody goes rogue and starts selling volatility, I'm going to fire them. Like that's the easiest question in the world. But uh, certain programs will do well in certain environments, less than others. And our future drawdowns always ahead of us. So if they have their biggest drawdown today, but it seems like they're sticking to their knitting, have they lost their way or is their style gone out of favor for a few months, a few years? Like it's impossible to know that. And it's one of the things in our industry that nobody really will claim or, or, or raise their hand about is that none of us really have a good answer for this. It, it's, it's really gut feel, right? It's an I, I, the, the frequencies that we, that we observe the market at for sure. Yeah. I think there so, are, there's probably probabilistic dislocations that would might, that might be obvious. Yeah. Um, if, if there's a, you know, here, here's the structure, here's the cone of probabilities for the, the particular manager and you're and that you see this operating outside of that, but, but maybe the, 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 it's the I think because the distribution is so strange, right? Correct. Yeah. And it could be like it, like you, like you point to, it might be the actual strategy that, that filled the area of that, um, that, um, the moneyness that you were looking yeah. for is just right. that much out of favor. The manager is actually doing what you want. The outcome is not what you thought. So I, I asked this question just because it is a really tough, tough question. And I was hoping you had the answer. No, part of it is like <laughs> think about that moneyness, like like Rod brought it before is like if you had a manager that you were covering that negative 20% like attachment point and the market drops 18%, well, you never you never hit the strikes, so you didn't make any money. So you kind of got egg on your face, even though you just told your clients that. But the way uh Taylor and I think about it is like we have Thanksgiving risk because our family, our friends are and our families are in this. So that's why we're trying to overlay those moneyness and overlap it. So like you pointed out, if, if a manager misses it somehow or it didn't touch the strikes they needed or it didn't have the path dependency to Adam's point, it didn't have the sharpness of the move, all of this stuff is so difficult to hit that path dependency just right. That's why we think it really lends itself to this ensemble approach of layering them on top of each other and overlapping those Venn diagrams to try to make sure you capture that meat of the move. Because especially if it happens once a decade, you don't want to be like, we're your guys for for the sell-off and then the sell-off happens once a decade and we're like, well, you know, this oh, yeah, wasn't totally. quite the move we thought, you know, so right. we're, yeah, we're doing the best we can to try to make sure we don't have to have excuses, you know, once every 10 years and go out of business. Yeah. yeah. I could just see the board meeting. The complexity of the exposure will be 
Um, but you do know that you'll be there for some of it anyways. You'll do some of the job that you were paid to do. Exactly. Yeah. And I hate those shock tests people put. Like there's there's a lot of managers we talk to. They're like, here's a shock test of if it looked like 2008 or 2011 or 2015, you know, all the little different like micro crises. And this is the shock of our portfolio now. And what it return like? It's just, it's just never going to look like that. No. Exactly. I love it. And I, I'd love to hear the board meeting. There was a board meeting at CalPERS where they decided to pull it all. Yeah. And then and then there's some guy at that board meeting, we got to get rid of this thing. And he's sitting there like, <laughs> looking for new boards. <laughs> then you got Wimbledon. I mean, Wimbledon has been buying insurance for for um, a, a pandemic against for, for 19 years. And that, you can imagine, can you imagine if there was a board meeting there last year and they're like, we don't need this thing. And they're like, just keep it one more year. How did you guys? How did you? How did you guys handle it internally or, or outwards to clients when, you know, you probably experienced you know a different kind of drawdown in February March, than your models were expected, or to be at, at kind of the extreme of your models? And how did you manage clients through that? It looks like it's time to go. It's it's a really good it's a really good question because because it's it's like for trend followers right like you've got these the trend followers so often position as being crisis alpha but they're only crisis alpha if the skew manifests at a very specific frequency, right? If the skew manifests at a uh, monthly or preferably quarterly frequency, then that's when most trend followers are really going to um, do well. You've got some right. ultra short-term guys that maybe profited at a, w- with um, a few weeks, but you've got to be just so unbelievably short-term to be able to take advantage of a move that happens that quickly, which admittedly had literally never happened before. I mean, it was three times as fast as the move in 1987, right? So you can't build a model that is tuned. You've got to just sort of be positioned, like you say, for a crisis that happens in a way that no one's ever seen before. And I think right. the, um, you know, so, so that's where your type of, of strategy really comes in handy. And then it's just a question of, how much are you going to pay for it? How much does how much do you allocate to it? And I think it that was a really good lesson in um, in risk management this um, this this March. Yeah, I mean the other thing was that we had a pretty significant run up, so right. uh, there was a lot of there was a significant amount of paper gains that were given up um, prior to. So, but again, you know, as much as we say paper gains, everybody thought they owned those 100% and they were in their portfolio. So it's like, I, I fully recognize that, it, you know, that's not an excuse. It doesn't matter. And, um, you know, there's improvements that have been made and will continue to be made. And that's, that's the evolution. And I think that's the, uh, what I'm hearing from you as well is that there's managers that you have in place and you are constantly looking for new managers that will add those wrinkles yep. in order to continually develop a really robust process that has, at least a break even or a slightly positive carry that allows you to do some other things too, that, that really kind of round out the, the tail hedge, which is uh, incredible. Well, that, I would, I was keen to get those last two uh, little bits in about the managers and manager selection. And other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to copyright that endorsement by you. I think I'm good now. I'm going <laughs> to cut that done. paste it on our TM. Pitch deck. TM. Yeah. <laughs> done. Well, thank you for taking all the time. I don't know about you guys. You have anything else left? No, I think that's it. That was great, Jason. Thank you. I know. I, 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 I gotta, I gotta. If, if we're gonna continue, I gotta take a break because I gotta go get more. I'm out. I gotta go too. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Are you interviewing um, your uh, what's his name, Diego Paria? Is it? I actually did that right uh, before we got on. Diego and I did two hours, and then I had like a thirty minute break, and then we got on. So, yeah, it'll come out in a few weeks. Oh wow! 
yeah. raspy voice or anything, man. That's great. Yeah. Um, all right. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on I, and giving I, us. I just got a DM from from Rodrigo. Right. He said our risk parity crushed it. By the way, in that period, so I, I was thinking of different mandates, but <laughs> <laughs> he's everywhere all the time. You can't say yeah. anything without him being here. Yeah. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everyone. Uh, yeah, See you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thank Driving, you so Rodrigo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't text while driving. See ya. Totally. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.